Romans 4, 16 to 17. Romans 4, 16 to 17. For this reason, it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace, in order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, A father of many nations have I made you, in the sight of him whom he believed, that is God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Amen. In verse 16, the apostle is... He's basically summarizing in one verse all that is important and all that is related to our salvation in reference to who it includes, the means of salvation, which is by faith, and the ultimate source of it, which is by grace, and the certainty of it, who it includes, which is Jews and Gentiles, how it is obtained, that is by faith, the source or the foundation of it, which is the grace of God, and also the, the fact that we can be certain of our salvation. He explains all of that in verse 16. And then the example continues from 16 to 17, the example of Abraham and the promises of God to Abraham, which show that God is consistent. He is consistent from the time of Abraham, and actually even before that, from the time of Abraham to our day. And who is it that we believe? Who is it that Abraham believed? The God who gives life to the dead and the God who creates something out of nothing. The God who gives life to the dead and who creates something out of nothing, which I believe is at least an illusion to the creation of the world, and even practically speaking in reference to Abraham and Sarah. They did not have the ability at all at their age to conceive and bear a son, and yet God granted that. Well, let's review it more carefully in verse 16. For this reason it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace. For what reason is it by faith that we are saved? Because it agrees with grace. If we are saved in any other way apart from faith, then it has to be works. If we are saved in any other way apart from faith, it has to be by works. If it is by works, then it's not by faith. If it is by, if it is by faith, it is not by works. Romans 3, 27 to 28. Romans 3, 27 says, Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Works, our good works, cannot save us. That's not the way salvation is obtained. It's not that way. It is only by faith. 
even the good works of the law of Moses. The good works of the law cannot save us. The law's good works are not intended to show that there is a way for us to work for salvation, but the good works of the law are intended to show us how holy God is and how far we fail, how miserably we fail to keep it. That's the purpose of the law's good works, to show us that, and therefore to condemn us for not keeping it. To condemn us for not keeping it, that's the reason for the law. And then the way of salvation also presented in the law is in Christ Jesus, Jesus alone. So if we are saved by faith, it has to also be in accordance with grace. Not our grace, but God's grace. God's grace that grants faith to us. It has to be the grace of God. Keep your place here. And also notice in verse uh, chapter 3, verse 24. 3, 24. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. We are justified. He doesn't use the word by faith there, but He does, as we just read in 3, 27 and 28. But He does mean that we are justified ultimately, foundationally, essentially, originally, because it is a gift of the grace of God. It says, by His grace, meaning God's grace, which is what he is repeating in verse 16, 416, that it might be in accordance with grace. God's good grace. Further, Romans 11, Romans 11, 5 and 6. Romans 11, 5 and 6 on the grace of God. 11, 5. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Why is it that there is a remnant? Why is it that there are only a few who believe? Why is it that the vast majority of the population that says they believe, that says that they are redeemed in Christ, that they are Christians, that they are not truly Christians? Why is there only a remnant? Because it's according to God's gracious choice. It's by His grace. Then in 6, he says, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. In this passage, he uses the word grace, but not the word faith, because he already has explained, such as Romans 4.16, that if it is by grace, then it is, it is by grace through faith. If it is on the basis of God's grace, then it has to be faith. And that faith that he gives as a gift to some, to few compared to the many, to the remnant 
compared to the whole nation or the whole populace, even worldwide populace, of those who claim the faith. Not just Christians as opposed to Muslims, not just Christians as opposed to Hindus, which of course Hindus, Muslims, and others are unsaved. Atheists are unsaved. They don't even want the salvation. Well, in that case, it's very obvious, but he's also saying in reference to those who claim to believe, because Paul's audience includes Jews who think that they are fine with God, who think that God is good with them, who think that they are on their way to heaven and eternal life. But it's not that way. So then, returning to Romans 4, 16. Notice the connection between by faith and with the grace of God. He says, in order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants. In order that introduces the purpose. Why is it, therefore, that God says it is with his grace by faith in Christ? Why is it that God made it work that way? Why is it that God ordained it to be that way? He says, in order that, this is the reason, so that the promise may be certain. The promise may be certain. Well, who is making the promises? God, right? God is making the promises. So if God is making the promises, is God a liar? No. Is God weak? Is he powerless? No. So if God is making the promises and he is powerful, then we have certainty. That's the word he used right there. The promise may be certain. We have certainty that what God promised to us will be fulfilled in us. What he declared true of us will indeed be carried out. Keep our place here. Keep our place here and turn to Hebrews Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6, 13. Hebrews 6, 13. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, And I will surely multiply you. And thus, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath in order that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement, we who have fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become 
a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. God swears by himself. He says, surely he will bless us. And God, he, when he speaks, what he says itself is true. But then when he swears by himself, he gives us double assurance that what he said will be true in us. And he says there that we might have strong encouragement. He says in verse 18, strong encouragement to know that our salvation is certain. He he even says in verse 19, a hope that is both sure and steadfast, sure and steadfast. And it's like an anchor, an anchor that is making sure that the ship stays in place. That's what we have, making sure of that. That's why Paul said in Romans 4, 16, that we have certainty. We have certainty with our salvation, not uncertainty. Now, what's the opposite of that? If we are saved by faith and works, that's impossible anyways, but if we are saved by faith and works, or if we are saved by works, what element does that introduce? It introduces uncertainty, correct? If we say, if people say we're saved by faith and works, or if they say we're saved by works, it introduces the element of uncertainty, lack of assurance. We have no confidence that we are going to be saved ultimately from our sins. Why? Because we know in thought, word, and deed, we will not be perfect until the day we die. In thought, word, and deed, we will not be perfect until the day we die. We know that if we're honest. I know people are dishonest and they will never admit it. But when they are honest, they know they will never be perfect until the day of their death. So that they cannot depend on their own faithfulness, on their own good works. They cannot depend on that. And that's what introduces lack of certainty. But we have certainty if it's completely dependent on God to save us and to save us forever. Yes? Yes, yes. Therefore, if we are producing the works, it would contradict such as Romans three, ten, As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. And verses 11 and 12. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And also Isaiah, as mentioned, Isaiah 64, 6 and 7. Isaiah 64, 6 and 7, which says our righteous deeds, 
Not our wicked deeds, our unrighteous deeds, but our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Isaiah 64, 6. For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. And there is no one who calls on your name who arouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the power of our iniquities. Verse 6, our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Yes, we don't have assurance or certainty if we depend on ourselves, our works. It has to be 100% the grace of God and 100% God granting faith to us to save us from our sins, to justify us in the sight of God. Now, let's continue. Who benefits from this? Why did God ordain it this way? Why did God appoint it this way? Why did God orchestrate it this way? By His grace through faith in Christ. Why did He do that to grant us this, uh, this certainty? To whom does this apply? Why did he do it this way? Verse 16, to all the descendants, to all the descendants, or to all the seed, or to all the offspring. The plural descendants is used here in verse 16. To all the descendants. Why to all the descendants? Who are these descendants? Does all the descendants mean Every single descendant of Abraham as a man, as the forefather of the nation. Does it mean that? No. Does it mean all the descendants of Abraham and Isaac? All the physical descendants of Abraham and Isaac, which would include the descendants of Jacob and Esau, since they were the two sons of Isaac. No. Does it include... Every single descendant of Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob, because Jacob had 12 sons, and those 12 sons became 12 tribes, and the 12 tribes became a nation. Was everyone in the nation, descendants of Jacob, were they all redeemed? Were they all saved? No. Not them either, right? So who are all the descendants here? The ones who are of the faith of of Abraham, the believer. That's been his argument from chapter 4, verse 1 onwards. It's been his argument. Now he's going to say it further. He says, not only to those, verse 16, not only to those who are of the law, who are those people? The The Jews who had access to the law. They had the law in their hands. Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. Now, at the end of 16 and the beginning of 17, who are the rest? that he says, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, 
who is the father of us all. Who are the us all? The Gentiles, which 17 makes clear. A father of many nations have I made you. He includes the Gentiles. Those Gentiles were already mentioned, for example, in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 29, 29 to 30. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Jews and Gentiles, Jews called the circumcised, Gentiles called the uncircumcised. Jews and Gentiles are saved this way. So Abraham is the father of all of us, spiritually speaking, because whether we are Jews or Gentiles, we believe in the same gospel Abraham believed. Therefore, he is our spiritual ancestor and our ultimate spiritual father, both of Abraham and all of us, is God himself. In verse 17, it says, A father of many nations have I made you. The Bible here, the Apostle Paul here, is quoting Genesis 17, 5. Genesis 17, 5. God announced it to Abraham as a promise, and then he fulfilled it after that, right? And reminder, was Abraham in Genesis 17, verse 5, was Abraham circumcised or uncircumcised? By that point, uncircumcised. By the end of the chapter, God told him in the middle of the chapter to practice circumcision, and by the end of the chapter, he was circumcised. However, he wasn't at the time God made the promise. This is what we studied in verses 9 to 15, Romans 4, 9 to 15, that God did it chronologically that way in Abraham's life, step by step, so that Abraham would illustrate the fact that Abraham is the spiritual father of both Jews and Gentiles, those who are circumcised and uncircumcised. He is their father. And that's the reason why the apostle quotes it in, in chapter 4, verse 17. As it is written, now it is fulfilled, or is being fulfilled. Further, verse 17 He says, in the sight of him whom he believed, even God, or that is God. In the sight of him whom he believed, that is God. This takes place before God because he believed in God. Or he believed in God, and this same God is Abraham's God and our God. This is the way God has ordained it. That's actually also what God said, or the apostle said, in chapter 3, 29 to 30. Because he said, he, the God who is over all of us is one. He believed in that one God. We believe in that one God. And we all belong to that one God. 
We're all in the same family of that one God. Not different gods, not different comprehensions, not different understandings of that God, but that one God. The apostle here is actually, he's in, a, in one sense, he's including all the world. And in another sense, he's excluding all the world. Correct? This is the irony that he is including all the world in that everyone in the world, they, if they believe in Jesus Christ, will belong to one family. Abraham's family and ultimately God's family. We all belong together. So that's the way in which the whole world is included. But then the whole world is excluded if they do not believe in the same God and the same gospel we believe. In that sense, they're all excluded. All who hear it or those even who don't hear it and never believe it, if they don't believe in the same gospel, the same God in whom we have placed faith, then they are all excluded. Included in that, it's preached to everyone. We've tried to preach to everyone and whoever believes it is saved. But those who never believe are excluded and remain unsaved and lost and punished forever. Further, verse 17, who gives life to the dead. Abraham believed God gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. We have to wonder, though, how is it that God gives life to the dead and Abraham knew that? How did Abraham know that God gives life to the dead? Let's think about the literally dead uh, in some way, literally dead or... Yes, in Abraham's case, from Genesis 1 to 25, um, that's the section of Scripture that deals with the background to Abraham and Abraham himself. In Genesis chapters 1 to 25, Abraham dies in chapter 25. So if Abraham's life is described from the end of chapter 11 and into chapter 25, what was the background that Abraham would have known being a prophet of God? Genesis chapter 20, verse 7 says he was a prophet of God. So if he were a prophet, he would have known the background. That is, what happened in the days of Noah? What happened in the days of, of Enoch? What happened in the days of Adam and Abel? Right? So in what sense was there somebody who had no life and then life came about? That God was able to give life to the dead. In what sense would Abraham have believed that, known that, and trusted in such a God? I believe that there are at least three examples of that. Of Abraham knowing it and displaying it. At least three examples. 
The creation. Creation. The creation of Adam. When Adam was created, according to Genesis 2, verse 7, Adam was created from the dust of the ground. Right? From the soil. Adam was created from the soil. When he was created in Genesis 2, verse 7, it says, The Lord God formed man of dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. A living being. Which means he was dead, not in the sense that he sinned and died, but he was lifeless when it was just the material soil, when it was just the material dirt of the ground, he was lifeless in that sense. But life came into him when God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Abraham certainly would have known that, right? Okay, that's the first example of God being able to give life to the dead. How about the second example? Eve, yes, exactly. Eve in chapter 2. Chapter 2, 18 to 25. God, he caused a sort of death to occur in Adam in that he put him to sleep, right? That's a kind of death. It's not a literal death, but it's a kind of death. And then God caused him to live again after that sleep, right? To be aware, consciously aware after the sleep. But meantime, from the rib or the side of Adam, God took a rib and he gave Eve or or gave life to Eve from that. So she was, in a sense, dead. Certainly she was lifeless. And then she also received life. So that's twice. And I said there's probably three examples at least. The third one is Isaac himself. Isaac. Because Abraham knew the previous examples, he knew that if he had slain Isaac on the altar, that God was able to raise him up from the dead. And how do we know that? We, we can know that from reading carefully Genesis 22, but... To go straight to the point, Hebrews 11, 17 to 19, makes that point explicitly. Hebrews 11, 17 to 19, makes the point explicitly. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered, who's the he? That's Abraham. Abraham considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Isaac was not literally put to death, but he knew that if he had to put Isaac literally to death as a sacrifice, God would raise him up from the dead and continue to give life to Isaac so that he would bear a son, and the lineage would continue through Isaac. He knew all that. He believed all that. So that's the example of God who gives life to the dead. 
and then calls into being that which does not exist. We've already said, that's what happened in the creation of the world. Nothing existed, and then something existed, right? And Abraham would have known and believed that. And also, even in his own condition, he was not able to beget any children. Sarah was not able to conceive any children, right, at their age. And yet God performed miracles in both Abraham and Sarah so that at the age of 90 for Sarah and 100 for Abraham, they had Isaac born to them, right? So God's able also to bring into being that which does not exist, whether in the creation of the world or in the creation of a son for them in their old age. Abraham believed all that. And so should we. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.